0: So are you ready for some good news? Is that even possible? Last I checked, it's still 2020 and we're meeting outdoors under a tent with maybe wet and cold feet. But this book, maybe we should call it, at least that's what it has been called. It's been called a book within the bigger book of the Bible, but maybe we should call it a letter or a treatise. This book that we're about to study for a number of months is proclaims to be the greatest news that has ever been made known. And if it is true, then it influences absolutely everything from life and death to the present and to the future, to history and eternity, war and peace, power and authority, the rich and the poor, slavery and freedom, identity and purpose, family and society, neighbors, enemies, mercy, justice, our time, our money, our calendars, our checking accounts, our work, and our leisure, to name a few. Let me introduce you to the good news according to Mark. And Mark will introduce us to the one who proclaims that good news, and some have said, is actually the good news. From the very first statement of the very first verse This is how Mark begins. This is the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Mark will then spend the next 16 chapters, as we have in our Bibles labeled these numbers, not in the original. But for the next number of pages, he will attempt to prove this statement by showing us Jesus. So I want to introduce you to Jesus as if you are just coming to learn about him. And I want you to do something for me. If you have been trying to learn about Jesus and follow him for a length of time, I want you to try to come to him through Mark's testimony as if you know nothing about this person. Maybe you've heard the name Jesus. And if we are able to do that, to come even as a child might come to explore Jesus with curiosity, intrigue, wonder, and a whole lot of questions. If we are able to do this to some degree, then maybe we'll be able to receive the testimony of Mark as he intended. And who is this author that we call Mark? That Church history assigns this letter to John Mark, companion of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. We see him journey with them in Acts, and perhaps a close friend of the apostle Peter. In fact, many have said over the the years they assume that much of the content of this letter is the eyewitness account of Peter passed on to John Mark. Now, in those days, titling letters and treaties and messages was very different, and recent scholarship uh, would, would cast some doubt that it actually was John Mark who wrote the letter. We'll call it Mark, because church history has But even if it were somebody else assigning the name of this letter to honor the pseudo-apostle John Mark, or to gain acceptance for this letter, what is absolutely undisputed is that this treatise was received by the early church as 100% accurate, authoritative, and even spirit-inspired, to the point where the early church was willing to be persecuted and even die if they must to defend its claims as true. That is undisputed. It is now widely believed that Mark was the first of the testimonies about the life and ministry of Jesus to be published. If you have a Bible, it comes second likely in the list. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. Those four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus written from a different perspective with a different audience in mind. But now it's likely and well, well, well established that Mark was the very first of these accounts written and that the other writers, Matthew and Luke and John, would have likely been well aware of Mark's account. In fact, much of it is included in Matthew's testimony as well. And if that is true, why would that be important for us? It means that as Mark wrote and published this treatise, he wrote expecting it to go to an audience who knew nothing about Jesus, maybe other than his name, or perhaps some sort of controversy or questions or concerns. In fact, it's widely believed that Mark wrote in Rome to a Roman audience primarily, and that really shapes how we might hear and receive and respond, which means that if we might know much of these gospels. Some of you've been reading with us through the gospels on repeat this year in 2020, and now we're in our third time through. It will take some work, some effort to come to this, to come to these pages asking for fresh ears and soft hearts to meet Jesus the way Mark would want to present him as if we knew nothing, but I believe that would not only honor Mark, but I believe it is necessary for us today to quote missiologist Alan Hirsch, we need more than anything to be refounded in our understanding of Jesus and the gospel. Not reformed, the church has gone through reformation, but he says refounded because the foundation of everything is Jesus. So let us hear with fresh ears and soft hearts, God help us, that, we might, that what we might hear could even surprise us or inspire us. And if you happen to be listening online or tuning in later because a family member or a friend said you maybe want to listen to this, perhaps you would want to explore who Jesus is, but you have no intention of coming to a church, even a church meeting in a tent in a field, then Mark is for you. It's why he wrote this to one who might be curious or wondering about this person, Jesus. Jesus. So dust off a Bible and follow along or Google Gospel of Mark. Probably have to scroll down a bit, but you'll, you'll find it for free. You can download a number of apps. I like the YouVersion Bible app, which has multiple English translations to read from and see how it's been translated from the original language of Greek into English and get a fuller picture. Read along, follow along. Don't just take my word for it. Hear the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said in that opening chapter, Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We'll talk about repentance and what that could mean at a subsequent message. And it might not mean what you think it means. Now the word gospel literally means good news. In the Greek, it's the word euangelion. In the day when it, when it, of which it was written, sometime between 80, 50, and 70, this word was synonymous with the proclamation of a new emperor coming to rule in the Roman Empire. It was called good news. And that message of the new empire and therefore a new era coming to the rule of Rome was meant to be spread far and wide. And it was called evangelion. That was the proclamation. Good news, good news. A new emperor is reigning. And it was tragically ironic for all of those who were living under Roman oppression because a new rule, a new reign could almost assuredly mean two things were about to increase. Tyranny and taxes. Hardly good news for those receiving it who are outside of Roman citizens but under Roman rule and oppression. So Mark uses this word intentionally, euangelion, to proclaim a new ruler has come. A new king has come. And how bold of a statement that would have been to proclaim to Romans as his primary audience. For no, there was no other king but the emperor who was often even considered to be a god like himself. The God would dwell within the emperor to rule and extend their power and their reign. And here's Mark saying, good news, good news. A new king has come and he is... Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The King, unlike any who has come before and unmatched by any who would come after. The King of Kings, the true King forever. God's anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. Jesus the Christ means Jesus the anointed one. They would often anoint, it was an ancient practice, when a new person would come into a high leadership or a significant role. For example, we see in the Bible, the high priest Aaron was anointed with oil, set apart for his role as mediator between the people and God. We saw it when King David took the throne, the famous King David was anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel. Here is Mark proclaiming Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the one who has been set apart from the beginning of time and proclaimed. And we'll get into the prophecy that he quotes from the, the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus the Christ, not only anointed, is the Son of God, bearing the name and therefore like the DNA of God himself, God the Father. And if Jesus is the Son of God, the only Son, then he is two things. He is entitled to all of the inheritance as the firstborn, so to speak, to all that is the father's will become his. And second, as royalty, he is in line to the throne. He is in line to all authority. And that's who Mark is proclaiming is this new king, Evangelion, good news. Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Christ proclaimed from of old, the son of God. Now, why would that be good news to anyone, even to Romans who lived under the rule of an emperor? Well, according to Mark, and we'll see it played out in these pages ahead, according to Mark, it's good news because the coming of the kingdom of God meant healing for all who were sick, justice for all who are oppressed, freedom for all who are enslaved, renewal and restoration for all that is decaying and broken mercy for all who have made mistakes forgiveness for all who have sinned wisdom for all who long for truth purpose for all who are languishing and peace for all who have conflict or turmoil provision for all who are poor refuge for the immigrant rest for all who are weary power for those who are oppressed strength for all who are weak to name a few. A perfect and all-powerful king has come from heaven to earth, Jesus the Christ, to establish a perfect kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, because he establishes his rule, power and authority through service and through sacrifice. He gives, he loves, he pours out his life for the hurting, the broken, the sick and the suffering, the marginalized and oppressed, oppressed, the poor and the weak. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms and governments of the world, which are full of corruption, abuse, greed, and oppressive rule. In perhaps the central declaration of Mark, he builds up to it. It's right around the middle of his treatise in chapter 10, as we would call it. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and following. Jesus called his followers to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the nations lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. They oppress. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a bond servant to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Does this sound like good news? More than ever, I hope, considering the world that we live in. A governing authority who uses their power only for good, who loves, who gives, who is humble, who speaks wisdom, who shows mercy and compassion, who is just, who holds all who serve under him to the same standard and character and will bring accountability. Would you want to be a part of that kind of kingdom? both as a recipient of its blessing and an agent of its extension. That's what Mark is inviting us into on behalf of Jesus himself who says, come, follow me, and shows in his life the way the good news is expressed and made known. This is the gospel. Whatever you previously thought that it was, allow it to be rewritten in your mind and your heart. If the gospel is merely a set of beliefs that take us out of hell into a heaven when we die, then we have completely failed to understand the gospel. The gospel is more, as the authors of scripture present it, it is more about heaven coming to earth, God's kingdom come in renewal and redemption, in healing and in wholeness than it is, about us escaping earth into heaven when we die. I'll press into that a little more when we see heaven meets earth and what is the gospel, potentially even next week, Lord willing. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he started his proclamation of the good news, the gospel. Over in Matthew and the other account, he teaches his followers to pray in the famous prayer that you may have heard. Oh God, our Father, your name is holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus used kingdom language almost synonymously, certainly tightly interwoven with heaven. There's many terms used throughout scripture to describe the heavens or the spiritual, spiritual places of, of God or the gods. That would be a long study to look into. But kingdom language is the most common language for God's rule and reign being established wherever he goes and then wherever he sends his people to go with his authority. There's a handful of things you need to know about this book, Mark. This is all all introduction, by the way. But let me give you a handful. Let me give you four. Mark is underappreciated. It just seems to be the most overlooked and likely underappreciated of the four gospel accounts, the others being Matthew, Luke, and John, each written from a different perspective with a different audience. But perhaps Mark is overlooked simply because it is straightforward, direct. Could it be because it was shortest? By far, it is the shortest account. But I want to say that being short does not make you irrelevant or lesser. In fact, being short... Might make you feisty and bold. (laughs) Can I get another amen? (laughs) This is definitely Mark, and I've come to appreciate his account greatly, and I hope to elevate it. Second, it's urgent. It's to the point. 42 times in this treatise, depending on what English translation you're, you're reading, you'll hear the word immediately, or straight away, or at once, all translate in the same Greek word, euthas. In all of the rest of the Greek Testament, all the other books, that word, that Greek word euthus, only shows up 12 times. And Mark uses it 42 times. He's got an urgent message to tell. Immediately, things happen. It is fast-paced. It is sometimes raw and emotional and hard-hitting. And as I said before, if Mark was the first one to kind of publish a treatise, to get it in writing and distribute it out, he had this urgent message in the midst of concerns and controversies and conspiracies about who this Jesus was. Was he the king? Did he have authority? Why are people following him? Why would they? So he has an urgent message to proclaim as, as God's people are also proclaiming this message from Jerusalem to Rome. By, by AD 50 or 60, this message has been proclaimed now and is spreading across Africa to the south of, of Jerusalem across Asia to the north, and even reaching into Italy and Spain by now. And Mark wants to proclaim this message with an urgent sense. It is underappreciated, it is urgent, it is upside down. As I already hinted at, and this is what I'm subtitling this series, The Upside Down Kingdom. Mark's message was counter-cultural, to say the least. It's not that it was hard to understand, it just wasn't what anyone was expecting to hear. And that was Jesus and his ministry, just unexpected. It seemed to turn everything on its head. Now, if you're in the tent, I'm not sure how well this comes through on the video, but you see the, the, the picture that I have here. And I've already heard it said that this is upside down, and I would argue that no, it's not. That this is absolutely a correct representation of a flat earth, but it's about, it's about perspective completely. If you are listening online, I have a world map on a mural, and it would be said to be upside down with South America and Africa towards the top of the picture, as well as Australia and North America and Asia and Europe at the bottom. First of all, if you were in outer space looking down upon the earth, you would see that this is a contorted view. It has been compressed. Africa is actually much smaller, which in reality it's not. You would also notice that there is no top or bottom, up or down. It's just that we have been taught to see things that way. What if it was possible that the way that we have been taught or grown accustomed to see things is absolutely upside down? And you would say, that doesn't sound like good news. That sounds disorienting. That sounds like I have to rethink and reconsider everything I thought I knew. But if you would pause for a moment and consider the current state of our world, then the possibility that we have had it upside down and there's something that's meant to be right side up, that is meant to be far better than what we experience, then that could be good news. Is it possible that we have been taught to look at things from the wrong perspective? The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of the world. From our perspective, it's an upside-down kingdom where power comes through service and sacrifice. To re-quote what Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man, a title he'll use for himself often, we'll get to that. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The King, the one with the greatest power and authority, shows what greatness looks like, service And sacrifice. Though he's all powerful. He came as one who is powerless. Instead of demanding to be served. He came to serve. His kingdom was spiritual not political. He brought spiritual healing. And freedom that was eternal not temporal. And often to prove that power. He healed physically as well. It's not what anyone expected. And I think we're still failing to grasp. The significance of it. And live in it today. Today. Many will turn away from following Jesus at this point because he demands the same service and sacrifice for all who would come after him. But most of us want the antithesis of Jesus and we make it our life goal to be served by others, to protect our life and possessions and to give away as little as possible. And we will keep on building the kingdoms of the world. But the upside-down kingdom of Jesus invites us into another world, perhaps one that was always meant to be. To quote Dr. Preston Sprinkle, he said, It's an upside-down kingdom where leaders are servants, neighbors and enemies are loved, and poor widows give away half their money. Under the lordship of King Jesus, humility is exalted. The first shall be last. Offenders are forgiven 70 times 7 and ethnic outsiders kneel down to help half-dead strangers lying in a ditch. The way of Jesus is counter-cultural, upside down, inside out, a kingdom where weakness is power, power is weakness, and suffering leads to glory. Finally, as we wrap up, Mark is underappreciated, urgent, upside down, and therefore, quite frankly, unbelievable. In both kind of usages of that word. I know you use that word unbelievable about things that you've seen with your very eyes or experienced and would still say, I do not believe it. For example, if the Seattle Mariners ever make it to the playoffs again, I'm sure I'll have watched about every game and I'll still say to my wife, I can't believe it. I can almost experience that. Maybe you parents have said it to your kids this week. I can't believe you just did that. (laughs) So you know what I mean, but it was also unbelievable in the, in the sense of everyone that Jesus seemed to encounter from the Roman authorities to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, to the disciples who were following him, to the crowds that flocked to him. You'll see it again and again that they just can't believe not just what they're seeing and experiencing, but who he is and what he's come to do. The upside down nature of the kingdom is unbelievable And it gives us hope as we come to follow him. I urge you to take this posture as we enter into this journey of knowing very little. Put yourself into that place to receive anew from Mark's account to be surprised and inspired by Jesus. And if that seems impossible, please don't take a posture of knowing everything about the gospel and what following Jesus looks like. Those who believed religiously they had everything right are the very ones that put Jesus to death on the cross. There's a powerful prayer in the middle of the book. It comes from an unexpected person, a man who's not even named, a no-name, but I believe to be one of the most powerful prayers in all of Scripture. It's from a father whose son is in crisis. He came to Jesus and begged for help and said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds, this is in Mark 9, 23, if you can, well, all things are possible for the one who believes. The very next statement is incredible. And then what Jesus does, the father honestly says, I believe Lord, help me in my unbelief. It would seem that Jesus had raised this standard that if you believe enough, then God himself would come and help you. And in a moment of vulnerability and honesty, the father says, I believe, but he knows it's not enough. And he says, help me with my unbelief. And Jesus does exactly what he's asking and honors his faith and his testimony. May that be our prayer through this study, real and raw. I believe, help my unbelief. And if we don't think we have significant doubt about who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him, then why do our lives resemble him so poorly? Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. What are we asking for, church? What are we needing? What are we desperate for Jesus for like the like this father was with the son in crisis? I know that my faith and my understanding must grow immensely and I pray that it would grow measurably today. Will you pray like that? And then will you take action even today and this week? This is an action-packed story, and we'll learn that following Jesus requires action, faith put into action. For those first followers of Jesus who were coming near to him, what it meant was to be on a journey to be on the roads, to be going into uncertain places, to be stretched out of their comfort zone, to be sharing meals with all kinds of people, ministering to the poor, surrounded by the sick, and on and on. That's what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Whatever we believe and how strongly we believe it doesn't matter as we are coming after him in this journey. And if you don't know how to do that in your context, I simply invite you to Food Trucks on Friday to just be present and just see. As 150 or so people come who are maybe other or different than us, but are loved by God and would be pursued by Jesus. Part of the reason we're willing to stay in a tent for as long as we might need to is to recognize that where Jesus was in life and ministry, yes, he could be found in the temple at times, but more often he was found on the roads and in the marketplaces and at people's tables and in the fields. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And Jesus was on the move. And that's what it would take for us to follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. I know that many here have prayed, maybe across their lifetime, but certainly in recent times. God, grow us. Grow my faith. Grow my dependency on you. Grow my need and desperation for you. Perhaps in this season of loss and hardship. God, you're going to answer that prayer. Not in the way that we wanted, but... If it's the only way to walk with you in your kingdom in an increasing measure, then we say we are willing and help us, give us strength and endurance to be faithful. In your name we pray, amen.